The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Father, you have told us there in Revelation 21 of the future. And it is as real as this day is. It just hasn't come yet. It's fitting then that the book of Revelation closes with the cry, Come, Lord Jesus, come, bring that to pass. But now we wait for it, and Lord, we thank you for telling us of this future and describing it in a way that makes some sense to us. A pure, spotless bride brought to her bridegroom who is none other than you, God himself. What an awesome reality that is. A wedding in which we are joined to you and you make your dwelling in the midst of your people forever and ever and wipe away every tear and remove all death and sorrow and mourning and it is no more. That day is coming and we praise you for that. Thank you for telling us. Thank you for reminding us. And Lord, today, now, in this time, I pray, would you cause this to rise up in our minds and become a controlling reality? A reality that controls today. That lives and and breathes in our minds and our hearts and controls how we look at and how we experience this day before the wedding as we await it when it hasn't come yet and the tears have not yet been wiped away and the mourning has not yet been eliminated and death still reigns. That's where we live now. And I pray, Father, cause this reality to become a controlling reality by the power of your word, through your spirit, in our midst. Bring that to pass for the glory of the bridegroom and the good of the bride, I pray it. Amen. From time to time, I'll meet someone who's engaged to be married, and as we talk, sometimes our conversation moves to the things that they're doing to kind of help them count down the days until the day. I've known some people who take their day timer and they write in it all of the days until the wedding in reverse, so that you look at your day timer and what do I have to do today? Oh, and it's 182 days until my wedding. And tomorrow, 181 days to my wedding. And next week, I have a business trip on days 177, 176, and 175 until my wedding. Kind of keeps it in front of you constantly. 
And then I've known other people who don't do anything until they hit 150. And then they take up the Psalms and begin to read them in reverse. 150, 149, 148. So that on the day before your wedding, which is usually the day of the rehearsal, on the day of the rehearsal, you read, Blessed is the man who gets married? No, blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked, nor stand in the place of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers, but one who delights in the law of the Lord. And on this law he meditates day and night. Well, your mind is really on something else. You're brought back on this law. He meditates day and night. And that's what makes him like a tree planted by a stream prospering throughout all of life and what it brings him. That's a good practice. I know other people who take a much more physical route. I know one woman who made a a chain of paper links strung it up in a room and, and day by day tore one off so you can actually see it counting down. Lots of different ways. But the thing they have in common is that all of them are ways, they're all trying to keep before the person the day. If a, if a day like a wedding or some other really significant day is tomorrow, it's really easy to remember. But if it's a little ways out, 30, 60 Heidi and I were engaged for about nine months, so 270 days out there. It's very easy to lapse into life as normal. You remember it, but you kind of keep on going, the ups and the downs, and the, the same old, same old is, is what life consists of. And you kind of forget that's too bad because when you remember it, it brings joy to your heart. It brings hope to you amidst in those down times when it's hard and, and we're separated and I'm longing for you and, and I'm dealing with this. If I can remember, we will be married and together one day, it can bring joy and encouragement to the here and the now. It is coming. That day is coming. And remembering it brings encouragement and hope and joy. That's what we're going to talk about today in Psalm 45. We've been spending a couple of months, we will be spending a couple of months, in the second book of the Psalter, looking at selected psalms from between numbers 42 and 72, noting often that they touch on this theme of affliction. We've looked at 42 and 43, and then last week, 44. We've seen that theme again and again, but today, in Psalm 45, we look at a wedding song. A love song. Which might cause us to think that the theme has changed, and and in a way, it has. Any tears shed in Psalm 45 are tears of joy. There is a purposeful, different tone here. Which raises the question, though, what is this doing after Psalm 44? Right on the heels of all of that despair. I mean, is the, is the psalm book just kind of compiled randomly with whoever put this together just kind of finding stuff and throwing it in there regardless of theme or tone? Because these things seem not to match. Now, without saying that there is always an intimate, close, very tight tie between every single psalm, without saying that, I do want to point out that often there are little connections. There are points of common contact and I think there's one going on here today. 
I look at Psalm 45, following 44 and 43, 42, and I think that it's doing the same thing here that Revelation 19 and 21 are doing after all of the affliction and trouble in the book of Revelation. It's causing us to lift up our eyes and look at the day and to keep it in mind and to hope in it. It's helping us to anticipate and to count down the days until everything changes. Something that we know is coming, but we can really easily lapse out of and, and forget. Psalm 45 serves that purpose for us. I'm going to read it here in a minute, but to create the mood, I'm going to read the last four verses of Psalm 44, because if you're moving right through the Psalter, that's what you encounter right before this psalm. So I'm going to read the last four verses of 44 right into 45. It's going to be a jarring change, but I think, as I've already explained, there's a reason for that. 44.23, Awake, the psalmist speaking to God. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty, in your majesty, Ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies and the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand, stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. 
I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Psalm 45. The psalmist frames this with two verses at either end that are in the first person. They are his description of what he thinks he's trying to do. He's taking up a pleasing theme. He's going to write a love song here at a state wedding. And the end of it says, and the result of this is going to be that this king's name is going to be remembered everywhere forever and he's going to be praised. In all of the nations, forever and ever. Everywhere, forever. That's his goal. This is a psalm intended to lift up a king and draw people to the worship of him. And he's looking at a state wedding and he's composed a love song appropriate for that setting. And he tells us in verses 2 to 7 what it is that he finds so praiseworthy about the king. Verse 2, he's a physical specimen, that's clear. But the grace, the blessing of God is tied to the grace that's on his lips. Meaning that he's eloquent, that what he says is truthful, it brings blessing, it's merciful and kind. What comes out of this king is a blessing to people, and so the blessing of God rests on him. He's endowed with the blessing and grace of God, but particularly verses 3 to 5, he is endowed with tremendous might. Verse 3, he is called the mighty one and called to strap on his sword and ride out to battle victoriously. Switching weapons, arrows that sink into the hearts of his enemy and all the peoples fall beneath him. This is an omnipotent warrior king going out into battle and triumphing over everything for the sake of truth, meekness, and righteousness. That's his cause. He's not a warrior of conquest or oppression, and he does not wield his might for self-aggrandizement. This is fascinating. What an intriguing combination. He's a mighty warrior king full of splendor, majesty, repeated there twice back to back to emphasize, majesty, and he rides forth in majesty to bring meekness and truth and righteousness. In fact, verses 6 and 7, that righteousness That is the defining characteristic of his realm. The scepter, the throne, the scepter is a a symbol, it's a little short staff-like thing that a king would hold saying, I'm the king. The scepter, his throne is one of uprightness and he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. That's what he's like. Righteousness and truth and meekness. He's humble. A marvelous king. Mighty and majestic, gracious and wise and truthful. What a king and what a kingdom that would be. It is no wonder that God has anointed him with his oil of gladness and made him stand out amongst all of his companions. To anoint him with the oil would make him kind of shine and glisten. He kind of rises up amongst everybody else. Saying, that's the king, the anointed one right there. Sounds like an enthronement type statement. Should remind us of Psalm 2. We read about this king being enthroned, and at that point, God would say to each king of Israel as they were enthroned, Today, you are my son. You are my unique representative. You, 
I take you out of the people and I put you on my throne and you will reign over my people with my power and my authority towards my goals, towards my values. You're my king, my son. He anoints him with oil saying, you're my guy. Which is surely how we have to read verse 6. At least initially. Verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And initially what we have to say about that is that the psalmist is looking at this king and saying, You are awesome. And he moves his eyes towards God and says, Your throne, this is the guy who sits on your throne, the anointed one who sits on your throne, and your throne is one of uprightness and it's actually triumphing. It's great. And then to clarify, in verse 7 he comes back, God, your God, I'm not calling you God. In verse 6 he has to be saying, at least initially, something that's akin to saying the battle is the Lord's, well, knowing that human beings will fight it. The throne is the Lord's, but you're sitting on it. And we have to read it like that, at least initially, because we have to understand some way that this psalmist could write this and say it and not get stoned to death. He is not saying to this king at the wedding ceremony, you are God. That would not go over well. And it would certainly not get him a place in the Hebrew Bible. To say to a human being, you are God. He surely means something directed to God. He clarifies it in verse 7. You're God. I'm talking about your God. But the door is just wide open for something else. Which is why, historically, this psalm was understood to be talking about the Messiah. It has to be. Who else ever did this? Who else was ever like this? Who else had this kind of character and this kind of might? spread his reign over all of the earth and brought in that kind of righteousness. Nobody. Never happened. David and Solomon would be the leading candidates. David was dead by the time this was written and Solomon spent decades wandering in unfaithfulness. There isn't any king that remotely fits this. Well, it's a love song. Love songs are never true. It's in the Bible, though. There's something there. And so long before Jesus, people would read this and say, who's that about? Who is that? There must be a king like that who's coming, who will set up a throne so closely aligned with God that God would say, that's my throne, that's my kingdom, amen, I bless you in that. There must be one coming. And so they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. Come to that. The psalm continues, though, verses 8 and 9, to describe the wedding ceremony. Catches little glimpses of it. We've just been through a presidential inauguration, and so we've seen some pomp. Some of us may recall the royal wedding of Charles and Diana. Diane, Diana. Seen a royal wedding with its pomp. It's all designed to say something really important is happening here. Ivory, Ivory palaces and perfume-laced robes, the daughters of foreign kings escorting this king. Something really important is happening here. He's taking a bride. And with that, 
passage moves towards her, verses 10 to 15. A couple things to note about her. She's described as beautiful and glorious, in robes laced with gold, in robes of multicolor, that is expensive robes. She's obviously a part of an entourage that's filled with joy and gladness as they come towards this wedding. The whole thing kicks off with an exhortation to her. Here on your wedding day, bride, turn your heart away from your past to this king. Forget your people and forget your father's throne, your father's house, your father's lands. This one now is your Lord, bow to him. The call to transfer allegiances. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. And the result of this wedding, verse 16, sons. Children. Your fathers, the language switches back to speak to the king, your fathers have passed on, but in their place will become many sons. And they will reign, not in this land, they will reign on the globe. This king's reign is going to be spread through his sons over all of the earth. And he'll be remembered and praised forever. That's Psalm 45. A wedding song with a message. A reminder to us to help us anticipate a great coming day. I'm going to make two observations from it and then tie it together at the end. First one picks up the tone of celebration in the song and connects it to its proper object. So here's the first observation. There is indeed a mighty king of righteousness on God's throne. It's not just a dream. There is indeed a mighty king of righteousness on God's throne. You look at this and, and people have asked for a long time, who is it? Hebrews 1 verse 7 tells us, quotes this psalm. Hebrews 1 7 says, Of the angels God says, You are winds and flames of fire, but of the Son, meaning Jesus, of the Son, he quotes our passage. He says of the Son, You, O God, your throne is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Hebrews 1. This is Jesus. It takes the open door of this little kind of odd shifting of it. Is it talking to God or is it talking... Who, who's God here exactly? takes that question, that, that open door, and says, let's be clear, we're talking about Jesus, God the Son. It says of him, you, God, have a throne forever of righteousness. That's really clear. and It's, it's a very interesting statement about the deity of Christ, but that's not what I want to focus on this morning. What I want to ask is, why does he do that? Why does the writer of Hebrews say, I read Psalm 45, and I see Jesus right there? Why? Because in all the places where Psalm 45 surpasses any other earthly king, Jesus fulfills it. In all the places where you look and say, that's not quite fitting anybody. There isn't anybody who enjoys, verse 2, the blessing of God forever. 
No king. We can look through the history. Not David, not Solomon, not Hezekiah, nobody enjoyed the blessing of God forever except Jesus. There isn't anybody who rode out victorious and conquered all of his enemies except Jesus. There isn't anybody meek like Jesus. Nobody so truthful as Jesus. Nobody that God would say, that's exactly what I am. That's exactly how I would reign. Except for Jesus. All those places, it stretched and exceeds all of the human kings, but, but Jesus matches it. But head and shoulders above all of it. I've already touched on a little bit. The primary reason that Psalm 45 touches Jesus is because of the theme of righteousness. It's head and shoulders above everything. He victoriously fights for righteousness. His reign is one of uprightness. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. That's the the key descriptor of this king in Psalm 45, and that is Jesus. Such a radical thorough commitment to righteousness moral spiritual uprightness no man no woman no child ever lived like that there is no one righteous no not one says the law says experience look around the world is not like that everybody in Jesus' day knew it and then he walked and he talked and he lived righteousness sinlessly Sinlessly, so bold that he could, so clear that he could so boldly say, Anybody put their finger on sin in my life? Can anybody, can anybody point out sin in my life? Feel free. Nobody could. Perfect, total righteousness. And then he fought, he rode forth and fought a colossal battle to eliminate wickedness. That's what the cross is. You can look at Jesus' life and you can see him living and teaching and acting meekly and talking about truth and living sinlessly. You can look at his life, but particularly when you look at the cross, you see this radical commitment to righteousness. He meekly gives up his life so as to kill wickedness. He hates it. We don't like it. He hates it. He hates it so strongly that he will give up his life to eliminate it. That's what the cross is. He will go to the cross so as to cleanse this creation of wickedness and to create a kingdom of righteousness. which you really want. You really want that kind of a world. And you hear it every time you say something like, he shouldn't say that. They shouldn't do that. That was wrong. Every time that you suffer under some evil or you see somebody else, particularly when you see children, Suffer under some evil. Something in you says, that is wicked and it should not be. What you're saying is, I want a world of righteousness. 
I want a world of rightness, where evil is not and good and justice is. Something in you that strongly wants that. Not as strongly as he does, but it unsettles you when you find it's lacking. It satisfies you when you encounter its presence. You want that. You long for it. A world where pride and all of its ugly cousins, selfishness, boasting, arrogance, domination, exploitation, manipulation, brutality, abuse, where words like that are meaningless because they have no referent. There isn't any abuse, manipulation, exploitation. It's gone. You want a world like that. Where that's all gone is replaced with meekness, humility, a considering of others and their perspective above your own. Service and love and compassion and care. And the good news is that world exists right now in seed form in the hearts of certain people. It's already come. They're just in a seed form. But it is growing. That kingdom has been established and is growing. And one day, like a massive tree, it will cast its shadow over everything. Or to change metaphors, it will fill the whole earth like water fills the sea. That kind of world is here now in a little form and it is coming only because one cared so much to bring it that he would meekly lay down his life. That's Jesus. That's the cross. What do you do with that? Obviously, if you have not yet trusted Jesus... You're an outsider to this looking in. This kingdom that I'm talking about, this place of righteousness that lives in seed form, does not live in seed form in you yet. And when it comes, you'll be cut out of it. You don't want that. You want to be a part of it. You want to experience it even now in little forms growing up in you and you want one day to know the glory of that kingdom. To know the place where righteousness is the norm. You want that. He's come to make righteousness out there and righteousness first in here. Trust Him. Give your heart to this meek Christ who went to the cross to save even you. Trust Him. I know that most of us here have, though. What do you do with this? You read Psalm 45. You see this great king. I mean, a lot of you, probably most of you, already knew this was in Hebrews 1. You already know King Jesus as the righteous king. What do you do with that? You don't just file it under stuff I know. You grab a hold of this and you walk right back into Psalm 44 and Psalm 43 and Psalm 42. You take it back there with you 
And then in your mind, you cry out to God in the words of Psalm 43, 1, Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. Cry that out. And then you ask, 44, verse 24, Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Look all of that straight in the eye and say it. It's real. It's life right now. You look at that, but you've carried along with you Psalm 45, and then you preach Psalm 45 to yourself with all of your might. Where are you, God? What's going on here? But you are a king of righteousness. That I know. Redeem me for the sake of your steadfast love. You will. You so much want that that you gave your life to make it real. You will. You preach that to yourself. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And to the degree that you're looking around seeing wickedness, you know he hates that. He's using it. But he is going to eliminate it. Totally. You don't let yourself off the hook. You hold it up in front. Preach it to yourself. This is the truth. You are this kind of king. That much I know. And then you season it with patience and humble trust. His ways are not ours. Sometimes we feel like oppressed Dutch citizens in World War II. In the low countries, northern Europe. And on your radio, you're listening. Nazi Germany has overrun your land. And you're listening, and you're wondering why in the world they invaded Africa. 1942, the Allies, the first move back against Germany was to invade Africa, which is like going the wrong way. Here's England on a map. Go directly east. You run into the low countries. And they went all the way over here. That's not how you get to my house. What are you doing? Well, maybe they made a mistake. Step two is Sicily. That's not any closer. Well, it's a little closer, but there's another way you could go. And then step three is Italy. And then France. There's still a shorter route from England to my house. It doesn't even go through France. What are you doing? When are you going to deliver me? Don't you know that the straightest road from London to Berlin goes sort of through my house? It does not go through Africa. You just don't know all the factors. There are lots of reasons that World War II played out like that. None of which are apparent to the citizen sitting in his house in Holland, the Netherlands. So you season it with patience and you say, you know a whole lot more about what's going on than I do. Come, I pray, I hope, come, deliver, and I'm going to trust you from what I know of you that you will do what is right and that you are hell-bent against wickedness. You're going to send it to hell you're going to grab it in your hand and escort it to hell yourself and drop it off there. That much I know. I don't know when, but that much I know. 
And at that day, he's going to claim for himself his bride. Which takes us to the second observation. Here's the second observation. This king strongly desires a pure, spotless bride. This great king strongly desires and will have for himself a pure, spotless, perfect, glorious bride. See this particularly in verses 10 to 15 that address the bride. Verse 13, she's described as glorious and resplendent. Her robes, her robes laced with gold, her resplendent robes. The thing that captures my attention, though, verses 10 and 11, that exhortation. Bride, transfer your allegiance. Swing your obedience. Swing your hope and your trust. Turn your eyes from your past, from your, your people's land and your father's house to the king. And he now is your Lord, verse 11. Bow to him. This is a royal wedding. She's probably, I mean, in, in the original setting, she's probably a princess, which means that she spent her whole life with a particular king. And the psalmist is saying, he's not your king anymore. This one is. Give him your allegiance. That's what he wants. You do that and he will desire your beauty. That makes perfect sense in the original. But having already noted that we know who the king is, it's hard to escape knowing who the bride is. It's all over the New Testament. Who's the bride of this King Jesus, the church? And that language is repeated a number of times throughout the scripture. It's implied, I think strongly implied, in Jesus' parable of the ten virgins. We see the virgins here escorting this bride. Well, the virgins that are waiting for the bridegroom to come in that parable, it's hinted at there. It's explicit in Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5 and John's teaching in Revelation. Here's the bride. King Jesus is pursuing and will claim his bride, the people of God. Knowing that makes it hard to skip over the forget your people in your father's house as if they don't apply to us. They do. It's what he intends for us, to put some other words on it, of this transfer of allegiance. We might put words like obedience, faithfulness, Christ-centered affection, Hating all unclean things. That surely would be pleasing to the one who himself hates wickedness if we hate it. To love what is righteous. That surely would be pleasing to him if he's like that, if we were. How are we pictured in Revelation 19? Verse 7 says, you don't have to turn here, but Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, which sounds like some of the joy and gladness from Psalm 45. For, here's why we rejoice and are glad, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. And here's how she made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
That's what the glorious bride at the wedding feast of the Lamb looks like, clothed not in garments made of cloth, clothed in righteous deeds, opposing wickedness, following after what he is after. We're clothed not in multicolored robes or robes laced with gold. The imagery's changed a little bit, but they are robes of righteousness, which lays something at our feet, church. We must be personally, closely concerned for righteousness. Not as a great idea, but as real in your personal life. Holiness in your personal life. To love what is righteous and to hate what is wicked. You in your personal life. We must strive to be that kind of bride that pleases the groom. That's what we're clothed in. That's what we're called to. Sin should not be named among us. It will be because we're fallen. But we must fight against it. You in your life, and you must be open to other people helping you fight against it. This is one of my challenges. Who likes having other people point out their sin? It's not fun, but it's a blessing to you. One of my challenges is to hear when somebody says, you do this or that, to get past the indignation of how dare they to say, what's the truth in that? If there's sin there, I want to fight against it and get rid of it. So does he. That's the kind of bride that he wants. So I need to be very clear about that, to lay that at the feet of the church, the feet of Christians here. You must strive be clothed in righteous deeds. Let me be clear. And I want to point out a marvelous blessing. Because there's something that is mind-bogglingly good here. Christ so much wants a holy and righteous bride that we must strive to be holy and righteous. And Christ so much wants a holy and righteous bride that he is going to make his bride holy and righteous. There's a whole lot in the little change at the end of those two sentences. Psalm 45. Who brings in the kingdom of righteousness? The subjects? No. The bride? No. The king of righteousness rides forth victorious to accomplish righteousness. Revelation 19, the bride clothes herself. It was granted to her to clothe herself in robes thus and so. Somebody gave it to her. It was granted to her. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25. There's a whole lot in this passage. I'm not going to talk about what it means for husbands. I'm just going to say it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Meekness. Gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
Listen to this. So that he might present to himself the church in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Who's the active party in that? Him. All through there. He sanctifies her. He cleanses her. He presents her to himself. He's doing it. Think of Cinderella. Remember the story of Cinderella. Who's Cinderella? The little servant girl who lives in the attic and is dead flat broke. Scraps together this little dress for the ball with the help of her mouse friends. But it's stuff she got from somewhere else. And when the sisters figure it out, they tear her dress apart. She's got nothing to wear. Till along comes the fairy godmother and poof, dresses her up. That's all nice, but that, that leaves, that evaporates. That's not permanent. Let's move ahead to the wedding. She meets Prince Charming at the ball and whatnot. Apart from the shallow romance there, there's a you know, little side note. Don't give your life to somebody you had a dance with. <laughs> but <laughs> she does that. It's a fairy tale. There's a wedding that follows. Where does she get the money for the gown? Where does the gown come from? She's got nothing in the attic. And her stepmother doesn't like her. It's a royal provision. And everything that she has from there on is a royal provision. She brings nothing with her. Christ so strongly desires a pure, spotless bride, we must strive for holiness, and he so strongly desires a pure, spotless bride that he realizes we cannot do it. He must grace us with that pure, spotless robe of righteousness. That is a good thing. It's all over the Bible. The Bible puts it, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you willing to work according to his good purpose. And his purpose is that he would have a glorious, resplendent, holy and wholly devoted bride. And he will accomplish that. One day, in the twinkling of an eye, you will be changed. And right now, you are being changed bit by bit by bit by bit. And he tells us that in the Bible so that you'll hold that in the middle of Psalm 44. So that when you're in the middle of a confusing, hard, dark, clouded time, you will know He is working in me something glorious and He strongly wants me. That's why it's a wedding analogy and not an army enlistment. Uncle Sam wants you, not in the same way that a husband does. Totally different. Same words, totally different. It's a wedding. The typology there is saying bride and groom, not king and soldier. Other passages talk about king and soldier. This is groom and bride. He wants you, and he wants you in a certain way, and he's working that, and he will make that. Strive for it in his power that he gives. 
pull this together into one sentence. Here's my main point for this morning. Remember this. In the middle of Psalm 44 and 43 and 42, remember this. The majestic King Jesus is indeed preparing to claim His glorious bride. Remember that. The majestic King Jesus is indeed preparing to claim His glorious bride. You, if you know Him, us as a people. We will dance on the streets that are golden. Glorious bride and the great Son of Man. From every tongue and tribe and nation, we're going to join in the song of the Lamb. Golden streets are pointless. It's a metaphor about beauty. That place and that time with Him is glorious and it is coming. Remember it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the fact of your Son sent to this world to make for righteousness in the world and in your people, in me individually, in my friends here, one by one, if they know you. Thank you for that. And I pray, Father, would you cause us to remember it and to look forward to it, to anticipate it. We don't know the exact day, so it's difficult to count down with certitude. But we know that there is a day and that it is coming, and so help us to hope and to look and to anticipate. Make that a controlling reality in our lives, I pray. In the name of your glorious, kingly Son, Jesus, I pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.